Last week, we finished up Isaiah 53, which is messianic passage we said last time. Reading through this today, and one of the things that is really difficult for me is to figure out who is being addressed. Sometimes it's, at least to a Christian, obviously the Messiah. Sometimes it's Israel. And sometimes it is Jerusalem. So as you read this stuff, it weaves in and out between addressing those three entities. And it's often hard to figure out which is which. And of course, the Jews see it all as either Israel or Jerusalem. They don't see the Messiah in there. Or at least they don't see that guy Jesus. They, they may see a Messiah, but they don't see Jesus. We've talked about that, and I'm not going to go through that again. So as we're going to start on 54, and I'm actually going to pick it up at 53.10, which is three verses back, the metaphors that's going to be used here, 54 starts off with sing, O barren one. Well, a barren one in Bible speak is a woman. For example, uh, Rachel was barren. Sarah was barren until God intervened. So the question then becomes, who is the barren one? And I am going to suggest to you that it's probably Jerusalem. Because remember, we talked earlier where God had sent Judah and Jerusalem and Zion into exile. You all heard this a dozen times, but I will remind you that this is being written well over a century before Judah goes into exile in Babylon. So this is all yet future to Judah. But one of the things that God talks about is, to whom did I sell you? Or where's your certificate of divorce? Those kinds of things. So it's all marriage talk, if you will, where God is the husband And either Israel or Jerusalem or Zion is the wife. Interspersed with that, of course, is servant talk, which most Christians take to be Yeshua. Most Jews, rabbis, take to mean Israel. So as we go through this, I'm going to try as best I can, and I am not entirely confident but I will try as best I can to sort of give a heads up as to who we're talking to in each of these passages. It's not easy, at least it isn't for me. And I, how do I say this without sounding arrogant, not sure I trust a lot of commentaries because they come at it with doctrinal filters on their face. And again, I'm not saying that those doctrinal filters are wrong. I'm simply saying they exist. And what I'm trying to do is read the text and figure out what the text says. And then we can go say, oh, this doctrinal filter is, in fact, correct. When we did the suffering servant back in 53, the doctrinal filter of Christianity is that's Yeshua. I agree with that. I don't have any problem with that at all. In other words, I'm not casting any doubts on it. But as I read through it, I became convinced that that was correct as opposed to coming to it with the belief that that's what it was. And there's no particular reason you ought to listen to me other than you're sitting in the room. I have no authority. Just 
trying to read the best I can. All right, so we're going to back up to Isaiah 53:10, and we'll get a run into 54. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And again, it is my belief, as well as normative Christianity's belief, that we're talking about Yeshua here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. For those of you who were in Midrash on Shabbat, Mike pointed out in the dietary laws where it says you will not eat the blood because the life is in the blood, what the Hebrew says is you shall not eat the blood because the soul is in the blood. And so you're not allowed to eat the blood because you're not allowed to eat the soul of the animal. Now, all of that is to come back here to Isaiah 53. When his soul makes an offering for sin, what we're talking about there in that context then is his blood makes an offering for sin. So in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, where it says you shall not eat the soul of the animal, it's and all of your English translations, they say the life is in the blood. The Hebrew says the soul is in the blood. So when we come down here to our suffering servant, and it says his nephish makes an offering for sin, what that tells you is his blood makes an offering for sin, if we are consistent with Deuteronomy. And we talked last time, he shall see his offspring, and Yeshua has no physical sons and daughters, which is, by the way, one of the things the rabbis object to about this passage. Wait a minute, he didn't have any children. And what I said last time is he, being a son of Adam, and being our brother, and God the Father being the Father of us all, and Yeshua's sacrifice allowing us to become sons and daughters of God, the offspring that he will see will be those who come to God through the offering of his blood. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And Again, that's Christianity 101, with which I agree. I'm not casting any doubts on it. It's just that's a common understanding of that. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And of course, that would be the crucifixion where he was crucified with two thieves. And the spoil I am suggesting that he will divide is when he went down into the dead and redecorated the place. Your reference there, I believe, is Colossians 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Very straightforward. So now we're down to 54. So sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Jehovah. What I think that means is we are now talking about Jerusalem or Zion or the land. What has been talked about up until now is the fact that God has put her away has not sold her to his creditors. Remember we talked last time about when he redeems her, he will not pay any ransom because he's the one who sent her out there and when he wants her back, he's going to get her back and he's not going to pay ransom to the people who took her. In 
biblical Hebrew, people don't own land, land owns the people. So at the Yovel, Jubilee, and the way it is written in the Torah is the land gets its people back, not people get their land back. And so if the land has been bereft of her people, the land then becomes barren. And we have all over scripture that their people are going to come back and the land is going to say, who are these? Where did they come? And you have, you know, queens will be your nursing mothers, all of that imagery throughout the prophets here. And so what we're talking about when sing, O barren one, which is to say Zion or the land, rejoice because you are going to be fruitful. Furthermore, look what it says. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Well, who's the desolate one? The land. So where are all these children that are going to be so numerous now? It's Ephraim. So you have all of the exiles that are in the diaspora, the exiles of Israel, the exiles of Judah who have not yet come back, and they are out there reproducing like little bunny rabbits. So when the land finally gathers its people back, the land is going to say, whoa, the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. So the idea is that during this time when she, Zion, thought she was barren, in fact, the people were out there multiplying, and the people that are going to come back then are going to be more than those who left. Only a remnant of Judah has come back so far. Only a remnant of Judah came back after the Babylonian exile. Most of Judah remained in exile. When we say the barren one here, what I think we're talking about is the land, and what we're talking about all the children that are out there in the diaspora are both Israel and Judah, or Ephraim and Judah, however you want to say it. The ones coming back are going to be far more than those who ever lived in the land. If you are a two-house congregation as we are, our belief is that out there you've got Episcopalians, Lutherans, Baptists, all sorts of people who are children of God and may also be physical descendants of Israel but don't realize it anymore. And so when God says, I haven't lost any of them and I will not lose track of any of them, God knows who they are. And what I'm saying is when they come back, it is going to be far more than ever lived in national Israel. So all the way down to verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate places. So this goes back with what I said, that the Israelites returning. When I say Israelites, I mean sons of Jacob, all of them. Those returning are going to be so many that the physical boundaries of Israel are not going to be big enough. Hence, what you wind up with is the boundaries that are described by Ezekiel which go all the way up to the Euphrates River and all the way down to the Nile. Because what we know is current and historical Israel is not going to be sufficiently large. Verse 3, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Well, what we talked about last time in this context is 
Back to 52, 11, and 12. Depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And what I said last time is I disagreed with my commentary because what I think that is talking about is Israel coming back, having her heart circumcised, a la Deuteronomy 30. Pick it up at the beginning. Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So we're talking about the end of exile here in Deuteronomy 30. Verse 4, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. You see this increase over what national Israel was before the exile. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put curses on your foes and so forth. So there's two circumcisions of the heart in Deuteronomy. There's the one here in 30, and then there's one back in 11, I believe. And the first one is Moses is saying, if you want to stay long in the land, you circumcise your heart, which is to say, do what God would have you do, walk in his ways, and circumcise the foreskin of your own heart, which means that you will prosper and God will bless you. Well, at the end of the day, when we get down to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, yeah, but I know you're not going to be able to do that. So what's going to happen at the end of days is God will himself bring you back and he will perform the circumcision, which is what's going on in Deuteronomy 30, which means that it will, in fact, be a complete and proper circumcision, and you will no longer go herring off after idols, however those are defined. So back to Isaiah 52, which is where we just were, where it says, uh, depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So what I am saying, I think that means, is Israel has come back into the land, God has performed the heart circumcision upon them, and then God turns them around and sends them back out to the nations. And we mentioned that in Exodus, the idea of God being your rear guard is God promises that when Israel comes up for the feasts of ascent three times, that their land will be safe because he will watch over it so they don't need to worry about leaving guards or anything else. They can all come up to Jerusalem for the feasts of ascent and rejoice without worrying. So the idea that the God of Israel will be their rear guard as he sends Israel out into the world to bring the nations into the kingdom of God, they don't need to worry about random Turks and Arabs and Ishmaelites or anything else coming through and plundering their land because God will watch it. So now back down to Isaiah 54, which is where we're actually studying. And in verse 3, where we said, you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. 
So what we're talking about there, I believe, is the boundaries of the land as described in Ezekiel, which, as I say, extend from the brook of Egypt all the way up to the river Euphrates. Furthermore, they're going to possess the nations. And what I'm suggesting to you is being talked about there is after the circumcision of the heart, when God sends Israel back out to bring the nations into his kingdom. That's what I think he means by possess the nations. It could also mean rule them with a rod of iron. I mean, there's always that possibility too. Down to verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Now, we talked about that last time. Remember, when Israel goes into exile... God describes that as if he had put his wife away. That's divorced. That's not widowhood. Widowhood is something different than divorce. So widowhood is when the husband dies. Divorce is when the wife is put away in a biblical sense. So what I am asserting here is that the death we are talking about is the death of the Messiah. And if you are, as I am, a Trinitarian then the death of the Messiah is essentially the death of God, quote, unquote. In that instance, then, when Yeshua is sacrificed on the cross, Israel becomes a widow because she was the bride and will be again. And since she was and will be the bride, remember Paul says in Romans that when the husband dies, the wife is no longer bound to him. She is now free to remarry. So what we have here is Yeshua dies on the cross, raised from the dead, and when he comes back, will reclaim his bride. But in the meantime, she's a widow. The Hebrew here is not al-tirah, which means don't be afraid. The Hebrew is al-tiri, which Michael is asserting means don't be afraid of me which would make sense in the case of a disgraced woman. So, Alturi, for you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So you've got, again, two images there. One is a wife deserted, and the other one is a wife cast off. I don't know enough about Hebrew marriage to know what the difference is between those. The first one is not given a get, which means you're not authorized to remarry. The other one, cast off, I am assuming, means put away with a get, but I don't know that. Verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. All of this is by way of making me believe that this is when the Messiah returns and you have the circumcision of the heart. Because one of the things that he will say here is that her 
adultery and so forth were in a sense like the foolishness of a young bride. So he's saying when he does redeem her and bring her back, that it will be forever. What I take that to mean is we are talking about Deuteronomy 30 territory. Verse 9, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. The reference here to Noah is after the flood, God made an absolute promise to humanity that he would not flood the place again, period. And so what he's doing is he's comparing the regathering and the remarriage to Israel with that same kind of a vow. So when they are brought back, he is saying to them, just like I promised all of humanity that I wouldn't flood everybody, I am promising you that I will never put you away again, which speaks to me of Deuteronomy 30 territory. Verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in animody and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. That is New Jerusalem talk. So when you get down to Revelation 21, where the New Jerusalem descends from heaven, adorned like a bride, it describes her construction materials as being precious stones. So again, we're talking here new heaven and new earth territory. 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31, the most common reading of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is in Deuteronomy, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31 version is the one that is repeated in Hebrews. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So again, this is marriage talk, divorce talk, etc., just like we are going through in Isaiah right now. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. You have all been through this. You recognize that the covenant with Israel and Judah is the northern and southern kingdoms. And then when he gets down to 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. That is Israel reunited. So when Israel comes back into the land, it is no longer Israel and Judah. It is now just the house of Israel. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Can you say circumcision of the heart? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Nor the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, what does it say back here in Isaiah, in chapter 54, verse 13? All your children shall be taught by the Lord. So no longer will you have to teach your brother, no longer will you have to teach your neighbor, but your children are still going to need to be taught. 
and their instructor is going to be the Lord himself. So if you're reading in Jeremiah 31, you might infer that there's no education necessary. It's simply saying that the adults will all know, and they don't need to evangelize or proselytize to each other. Children still need to be taught. And what it says here in Isaiah is that their teacher will be the Lord himself. 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. This idea, if anybody stirs up strife, it is not from me. One of the things that God does when he is dealing with Israel in apostasy and getting ready to send them into exile is he's the one that stirs up the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So when the Babylonians and the Assyrians come to take out Jerusalem and Israel respectively, it is because God has stirred up strife. And what he's saying here in verse 15, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. In other words, I'm not going to do that again. Whoever stirs up strife with you will fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. And I am suggesting that we are talking about Gentile empires who have from time to time invaded Israel at God's behest to chasten Israel and bring them back to the covenant. And when they would not be chastened and when they would not be brought back to the covenant, they then conquered Israel and took them into exile. So I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals. You're talking about Gentile empires and produces a weapons for its purpose. I have created the ravager to destroy. In other words, I'm the one that did this. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So what we're talking about here is when Israel is back in the land, and God is using them to evangelize the nations, and that's what I'm asserting that is going on when he says you'll possess the nations and so forth. He's sending his people out to bring the nations into the kingdom. And when that happens, they will be protected. Much like when Yeshua, during his time on earth, sent out first the 12, and then he sent out the 72. And he says, don't take a sword. Don't take two cloaks. Just go with your sandals and what's on your back. And go out and live off of the generosity of the people that you take the gospel to. Heal the sick, cast out demons, and let everybody know that the kingdom of God has come. And one of the things that they did not worry about was bandits, random Romans, any of those kinds of things, because they were under his protection and under his orders. Well, we are at 55, and we're going to change subject. Remember, I led this off by saying that this whole section of Isaiah swaps off between speaking to Judah, speaking to Israel and Judah, speaking to Zion, and then speaking to the Messiah. And you have to sort of figure out by context 
which one it is. And I am thinking that in 55, we're going to switch context. So rather than start 55 with a context switch, I am going to quit. Let us shine.